Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Karina Van Vliet, the CEO of the Cleveland Council on World Affairs and a proud member of the City Club as well. It is my pleasure to introduce today's forum, a conversation on the United States' response and responsibility to grave violence beyond our borders. Crimes against humanity are, sadly, very old news. One of the first human rights treaty adopted by the United Nations in 1948 was in fact the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. And yet, sadly still, the matter continues to be not only timely, but a very real and devastating reality for many men, women, and children around the world. Since 1948, all forms of grave violence, political violence, assassinations, crimes against humanity, and genocide have occurred in Cambodia, Darfur, Guatemala, Iraq, Myanmar, Rwanda, Serbia, and Syria, just to name a few. And in many of these cases, criticism has been leveled at the international community as a whole and the United States chief among them for the often inconsistent response to these atrocities raising questions as to why we acknowledge certain instances of grave violence and ignore others. Today, as extremism, racism, hate speech, violent misogyny, and all forms of xenophobia appear to be on the rise, what is the United States' role in the prevention of or response to grave violence and crimes against humanity? We've assembled a remarkably distinguished panel of individuals to share their thoughts and perspective on these difficult questions, and we thank you for those. Guiding the conversation today is IdeaStream host and producer Tony Ganser. Mr. Ganser has reported from Phoenix to Cairo and now hosts uh, 90.3 WCPN's All Things Considered, reporting on immigration, community policing, and much more. He was previously a correspondent with part of the Swiss Broadcasting Corporation. He holds a Master's of Arts in International Relations from the University of Leicester and a Bachelor of Science in Journalism from the University of Idaho. Mr. Ganser, I now turn the forum over to you to introduce our distinguished panel. Thank you very much and thank you all for being here. This will be a very interesting and important conversation to have and one that we have uh, every month at our conversations on global affairs. So it's good to, to bring it to a Friday forum. Uh, joining me on stage is Gina Abercrombie Winstanley, a former US ambassador to the Republic of Malta. Also joining us is Julie Maisie, Associate Professor from the Department of Political Science at Kent State University, and also John Evans, former U.S. Ambassador to Armenia. He's also the author of Truth Held Hostage, America and the Armenian Genocide. 
So our conversation today, we're going to start with the U.S. view, go to the international view, and then kind of zoom back into the U.S. And I'd like to open with a question to all three of you, if you can answer just briefly. What role do you have, uh, think the U.S. has or responsibility that you think the U.S. has to respond to crimes against humanity? Gina? Well, I think we have a long history in the United States of taking a leadership role. Uh, we understand our responsibilities to the international community and have often helped the rest of the world do the right thing as we generally conceive of it. That's been our history, that's been our tradition. It's something that I would argue we are struggling with a little bit in the last several years. And I'll stop there. Truly. Well, I would say that the United States is a signatory to um, many international agreements that define what a role should be and could be. Um, I would also say that in practice, our role has often been one um, that is more nuanced and has been um, one to consider not only what the expectations are under international policy, but what our national interests might be perceived to be um, and what um, a response to domestic public pressure might look like. Um, I would just like to add a, a note of realism uh, to our discussion. It's true that the United States is party to a number of very important uh, international uh, conventions and generally supports the rule of law in the world, uh, but the international arena is still a bit of a jungle. International law is not uh, the strongest uh, force in the world. It comes back to nation states. Um, and nation states are really uh, the states that make the United Nations. So if we want the United Nations to act, uh, it's up to the nation states. It's not an uh, independent entity of its own. I would also just say that, um, as Richard Haas once uh, said, uh, inconsistency is the soul of foreign policy. <laughs> so there's no cookie-cutter standard uh, that can be applied in these situations. It's always going to come down uh, to politics and calculations um, and the art of the possible. I wonder if we stay in that jungle here at the beginning, who decides what is genocide? Who decides what a crime against humanity is? Is there any single authority? John, maybe you well, start? If I can take a stab at it, um, the term crimes against humanity was first used in 1915 in the case of the uh, massacres of Armenians in Ottoman Turkey. The word genocide did not then exist, but France, Russia, and Britain used that term, I think it was on May 24th of, of 1915. But the, the concept of crimes against humanity has never been uh, definitively codified in international law. I mean, in general, the concept is these are inhumane acts, acts which would probably be considered inhumane in the uh, legal systems of, of many countries, um, and, the, the, are, and crimes that are committed in an organized um, way, so that they're not just random individual acts. Uh, so Julie, um, is that one of the reasons why different incidents or conflicts around the world are, are judged through different lenses? I, I like to look at Syria, where there have been uh, untold numbers of deaths, mm -hmm. and yet there's not much international uh, action on that conflict. We're going on a civil war into a decade. 
Right. I would not argue that international response varies because of a lack of understanding of what the policy is or what the definitions are or a lack of conceptualization of what atrocity looks like. The response varies because states uh, make a calculation. And that calculation is not based on just a singular principle, um, sort of unmitigated commitment to the value of human life. That response is uh, determined by what state leaders perceive to be other demands. Um, and so calculations are made, and it looks and it is inconsistent across cases. Uh, Gina, one of the principles that is often cited when we talk about crimes against humanity or genocide is the responsibility to protect. Mm -hmm. uh, can you kind of give us a, a, a bumper sticker? What does that mean and kind of the short history of that? Mm. Uh, the responsibility to protect uh, came up, I believe, after Rwanda. Uh, yeah, or, just after uh, Kosovo, I believe. Kosovo, yeah, okay. It was right. codified. Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. Uh, and when things are happening that are so egregious and internationally accepted as such, then states who can then have the responsibility to protect people within another state. Um, that within another state, of course, is the sticking point, either for being able to do it successfully or for other states being willing to do it. And of course, it takes the United Nations, it takes agreement among the permit five, and often, as we know, there is not agreement to identify which states uh, deserve that sort of international intervention. Um, certainly, and so then I go back to, um, I guess Rwanda, after Kosovo, where there was an intervention under the Clinton administration, and then the United Nations was called to task on the fact that they were willing to do it for Muslims in Europe, but not Muslims in Africa. I guess Somalia would have been mm, the case. Somalia. Somalia, yeah. So again, as our co-panelists point out, that it's not consistent. It's often an issue of what the traffic will bear. Within a state, within a government, do you have the support to put your own people in harm's way to do the right thing in another country? And oftentimes, that is simply not the case. Mm -hmm. yeah. John, yeah. Um, that's all exactly right. Uh, I would add that um, the, the principle of the responsibility to protect was discussed in the uh, General Assembly at the United Nations. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't have the status of law. It's a kind of a principle. Um, many states uh, endorsed it. And it, it has three um, pillars, if you will, uh, the first is that states should, first of all, protect their own populations against these uh, terrible, horrific acts that sometimes uh, happen. Um, and secondly, the second pillar, that states should assist each other in carrying out the first duty. Um, but if it gets to the point where those national authorities are not getting the job done, then the international community ought to be willing to participate as a community in, in protecting the affected population. It's, some have said that um, if you can't in, enforce a responsibility to protect, how about a responsibility not to veto at mm. the level of the Security mm. Council? Right. Mm. Uh, former Secretary General uh, Ban Ki-moon of the UN created a commission for R2P and really tried to 
um, solidify those pillars as a concept. But yes, it's not law. And Julie, uh, in an interview with NPR last week, a member of the Venezuelan opposition called for international support based on R2P for the situation in Venezuela. Late last year, a number of countries referred Venezuela to the yes. ICC. Um, do these referrals and calls or appeals using R2B actually mean anything, or are they just uh, trying to invoke the, the better angels of our nature? So I think there's an optimistic twist to that, and there's a, a nuanced twist to that. The optimistic twist is that those things happen now. Right, where they didn't happen 20 years the ago. The referrals. Other know. countries yeah. go into the ICC and say, hey, there are crimes against humanity, do something. Um, and they call for assistance from international actors. So that's, um, and there are means to do that. There are mechanisms to do that now. So that's, I think, a positive move. Um, the, the, there are caveats, though. One is that, so in the R2P uh, documents, right, in the pledges and the commitments, there are also commitments that you take every other means possible before you use military intervention. And those other means often don't leap to people's minds when they think about preventing mass violence or dealing with mass violence. Um, so there are sanctions on Venezuela that the United States have imposed right now that have arguably made the situation far more chaotic and, and far worse for the people who live there um, and intensifies an already uh, conflictual situation. One might argue that prior to military intervention, something should be done in the humanitarian world, right, that sort of lessens the intensity um, and sort of takes the vice off the necks of the folks that are living there. Um, and another caveat is that you don't make the situation worse, right? The, the idea to uh, protect um, people who are in harm's way um, is uh, only supposed to be pursued, that, that mechanism is only supposed to be pursued if you're not in, in the instance also making everything worse, right? So there are other things to sort of consider there. I, I think that the mechanism in place and the fact that international actors, civilians and political leaders and opposition leaders can call on that is, is a remarkable advancement. Yeah, and a big part of R2P was to, I mean, military intervention is only one piece of right. even the, the concept of R2P. Um, yes. but, but John, it, it kind of comes back to this core conflict between respecting sovereignty yes. and also respecting human life and humanitarian rights. Well, it does indeed, and, and the, the principle of responsibility to protect does not trump Article Two of the uh, Charter uh, which talks about non-interference in internal affairs. Um, Tony, you uh, didn't define what is the ICC, but I, think I am. We, we should do that for our listeners. The International Criminal Court was established in 1998 by something called the Rome Statute. It was an attempt by uh, like-minded nation states to see if we could uh, move the process forward in, in uh, international life so that there would be less impunity for those who carried out uh, outrageous uh, deeds such as genocide and ethnic cleansing. Um, it was, I think, 148 nations uh, voted for the Rome Statute. Um, the United States first signed it. Um, President Clinton signed it in, in the year 2000. But in 2002, uh, it went into the, the court was created in 2002, I believe, uh, and um, there are some 120 countries that support its work. But we, uh, at the beginning of the Bush administration, uh, took the signature back 
and, and declared that we would never participate in the, the International Criminal Court. And recently, uh, last September, uh, Mr. Bolton, who happens to be a college classmate of mine, um, uh, made a speech at the Federalist Society in which he, he castigated the court, said we would never let any of our uh, service people um, come before it, um, and termed it illegitimate. Hmm. Now, two weeks ago, the United States announced that we would not grant visas to judges of the International Criminal Court or officials of the court, and furthermore, um, we might arrest them. This is just two weeks ago. Hmm. Um, so, uh, and, and there already have been in place uh, prohibitions on funding the International Criminal Court. So uh, it has but to be pointed may I out. May ask that, that you clarify judges that are coming here to look at things yes. within the United States well, as opposed no, to coming for a vis visit? Well, they could, yes, they're not coming for okay. shopping. Yeah. Right. Um, they, uh, they might be coming to investigate alleged crimes committed by our service okay. people. Okay. We, of course, are protected uh, from that by a number of mechanisms. And John Bolton also protected us overseas in the Bush administration by what are called Article 98 um, agreements, which we have signed with, with, with many, many countries, which, which prevent the surrender of our service people to the court. Um, but this has now gone to a, a further uh, step. And also in the Bush administration, there was a, uh, an act uh, a law enacted called the uh, Servicemen's Protection, American Servicemen Protection Act, which again um, re uh, rejects the authority of the court, but also says that if our people are in the custody of the court, we can use military action to remove them from that custody. So that law got the nickname of the Invade the Hague Act. <laughs> Was that in response to Abu Ghraib or other violations or anything in particular? From the very moment that we went into Iraq and mm -hmm. even probably as that was being contemplated, we were very concerned mm -hmm. about protecting our soldiers from accusations which could be um, uh, improper and unjust and so on, uh, not up to the standards of U.S. Uh, law. We didn't want that to happen to our people, and so that's why all those Article 98 agreements were, were signed. So it's, it's really important to note that the rest of the world, most, much of the rest of the world, uses the ICC yeah. while we reject it, right? And that goes to Gina's first point, that the leadership role that we may have played up until recently <laughs> <laughs> is not one that we're playing right now, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's letting the rest of the world take use an institution that we patently avoid. And reminding Sorry. people why the ICC exists, right. which is the fact that there are a lot of crimes around the world where leaders get away with heinous activity yes. and there is no way of holding them to account. Yes. So, 
Uh, one thing, we, we have a good basis for R2P and that it is kind of the jungle, to use your term, uh, John. Uh, I think of two instances where the language of R2P has been used. One by Russia in particular in the invasion of Georgia to protect uh, Russian uh, nationals in Abkhazia, South Ossetia, but also uh, Libya in 2011, mm -hmm. uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton um, in justifying uh, U.S. participation, NATO-led uh, airstrikes on Libya, her, her talking points were drenched in the language of R2P. Uh, whereas when we're dealing with Syria, we don't hear that strong language about U.S. responsibility to go in and protect citizens. Um, does that mean that this really, R2P doesn't exist in any form that is usable or, or deployable? Maybe Gina? Well, I, I would note it was airstrikes for Libya. We certainly have had military activity in Syria as well, uh, not sending people in on the ground. But if about the level of activity, it might not be that difference with or without the language. And again, it goes back to my what the traffic will bear mm. with what we're going to do, any nation. It's, it's opportunistic yeah. language, yeah. right? I mean, when you have an opportunity where you think you can make a difference and you think it's in the, in the good policy decision to make a difference, you can use the language. We didn't have that before, so that's worth noting. Um, but, but I think your question is, is it unqualified, a consistent implementation tool? Right. It will always be utilized, and I, I, I think that's not the case. Uh, China and Russia argued after Libya, after the, the regime change. They were afraid of mission creep, and uh, in the literature, a, a number of academics have argued that that weakened R2P as a principle, and that utilizing it in, in future engagements maybe would be more difficult because it didn't go well in Libya. Do you think that's fair, that we're in a, a worse position now in making that case? in uh, future engagements? John? You know, the, the great um, Ohio uh, trial lawyer, Clarence Darrow, uh, in one of his summations, said you can have the best laws, the best courts um, in the world, but you've got to have good people, kind people, responsible people, humane people. And the same is true of what we do in the international arena. We have the United Nations. The United Nations grew out of the experience of World War II and the failed experience of the League uh, before World War II. And this, the International Criminal Court is really a, a, a kind of a derivative of the Nuremberg process, very much removed from that. But nonetheless, the same idea that the nations of the world can get together, decide what are standards, what are criteria. And this is why uh, we helped with the drafting of the Rome statute. We didn't, in the end, ratify it, um, but we wanted the standards uh, for how to select judges, um, standards of evidence and so on. We, we wanted those things to be included in it, even if we were not ourselves uh, going to participate. And to, to your point, the, the climate of the international uh, uh, world is always uh, adjusting to various things. I think you your hypothesis that we may be on weaker ground with R2P now, I think is, is quite justified. Um, but there are other things at work as well, in particular the actions of great powers like our own. Um, and again, coming back to leadership, 
If the United States does not lead, who will? I'm curious what role social media has had in changing our thinking about war crimes or atrocities around the world. Uh, during the Arab uprisings or Arab Spring, Twitter was a, a key mode of communication, uh, both for organizing protests, but also documenting responses to them. I'm curious how, how technology fits in. Any thoughts on that, Gina? Painfully. <laughs> yeah, I, I, your question brings to mind Somalia, if you remember, in the early 90s. And I was working in the State Department at the time, uh, doing African affairs and intimately involved as we tried to figure out what to do to address what CNN and other broadcast stations were putting on our televisions every night, which was this horrible sight of beautiful, starving, dying children. And it marshaled the United States and the international community to do something about it. And so that's media working with the government, with the American people about what our role should be and what we could do. Now that we have social media, we also have the ability to amplify the bad part, our lesser angels, those who think people outside of the United States are not worth our treasure, our effort, our blood when it comes to that. And so we shrink. We have this leadership of fear. What, what might happen to us if we try and help other people? And unfortunately, I think social media amplifies that aspect of it and keeps us less active in a way that we were expected to rise to. We, we, we don't. And I think social media has a lot to do with that. So I, I teach undergraduates. And I think there might be a generational dynamic there too, right? I think that, um, that the students who are coming into my classrooms now are so accustomed to not just uh, being the recipient of information over social media, but giving information and pressuring over social media and sharing over social media. And um, I think many of them come into my classroom appalled that they don't know things, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about genocide, actually I taught, I taught Rwanda last fall. And I had a freshman come up to me after class and say, I had no idea. I had wow. no idea that this happened. And I think it's amazing that they can be empowered enough <clears throat> to, and I, I don't have an issue with this, I know some people do, but they sit in my classroom and Google, right? Oh my God, I had no idea it happened. And I think that's, that's empowering. And it could be a mechanism where people push back on governments and demand more action, right? That, and there may be a generational evolution there that happens. Any thoughts, John? Um, leaving aside the fact that somebody with a beard probably shouldn't comment on uh, new technology. Not all guys with beards. Um, <laughs> Um, the Brookings Institution made a couple of very good suggestions, one of which was that the new technologies that we have, not just uh, social media, but uh, overhead technology, GPS, that kind of thing, can be very helpful in identifying large-scale atrocities overseas. Now, the, the wonderful example of how this was done was in uh, Darfur, uh, when uh, a non-governmental organization managed to get satellite imagery of the villages in that unhappy province and could show, not in real time, but uh, week to week, how whole communities were disappearing uh, because of the Janjaweed who were coming through and, and uh, destroying villages. That same Brookings report made a recommendation uh, 
uh, for the U.S. government that we main, maintain a, a positive engagement with the International Criminal Court, even if we weren't going to submit to its jurisdiction. I'm Tony Ganser, afternoon host for IdeaStream. Today we're listening to a forum on the United States response and responsibility to grave violence beyond our borders. Our panel features Gina Abercrombie Winstanley, former U.S. Ambassador to Malta. Also, uh, Julie Maisie, Associate Professor from the Department of Political Science at Kent State University. Also, John Evans, former U.S. Ambassador to Armenia and author of Truth Held Hostage, America and the Armenian Genocide. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We do welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, those of you joining us via radio broadcast or live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club. May we have the first question, please? The question is about distinguishing civil affairs abroad or an international incident, distinguishing those two things. How do we make that determination? Yeah, I, that is an, a challenging issue and one that accounts a great deal for inaction because it's a slippery slope or it's unclear or you cannot get agreement among the international community as to whether it is an internal affair that needs to be dealt with internally or whether the international community needs to become involved. So it's, it's not black and white. It's not even <laughs> big shades of gray. It's really muddy. And, and if, I'm, you know, from my professional experience, I can say that, that we in missions might be calling on Washington to do more, the international community to do more, partners to do more. but cannot get purchased because of that very difficult, is it interfering in international, internal affairs, and that we don't want people interfering in our internal affairs. John. That's all absolutely right. Um, I would just add, uh, refer to the very interesting task force study that was carried out by Secretary Albright and former Defense Secretary Cohen. Um, they studied this question of, of America's response uh, to genocide and other crimes against humanity overseas. Um, and what they wanted to do was increase the uh, number of tools in the policymaker's toolbox. And this gets to this whole question of what can you do? Mm -hmm. Now, one thing they identified is that the U.S. government has no appropriated funds for dealing with crises like this. I mean, there, there are lots of routine budget allocations, and so they suggested setting up a, a fund initially, maybe on the order of $250 million, so that if there was a crisis that involved refugees um, uh, in danger of death, you could, you could you dip into that money and, and send the necessary uh, resources very quickly, and much more quickly than the UN process might be able to do it. So there are, sending in the Marines is never the first option, and it's certainly not the only option. There are a lot of different options, but I want to go back to something that Julie said and emphasize that the first rule should be do no harm. May I mm -hmm. just quickly, one of the things that the UN try, uh, 
highlights repeatedly in their documents on uh, the R2P is the importance of development, right? The development aid often opens up valves for other modes of polit political participation and ways for groups to pursue their interests. And so you t potentially, right, cut off roads to intense conflict and violence. And so there are ways where you're capacity building, right, that second pillar, um, where you're not intervening you, and nothing has gotten to the stage where you've got real atrocity yet, but you're assisting with mechanisms that, that prevent that from happening. And those are the places where that sort of, that sort of funding, that sort of expertise can be really critical. And it is now part of how the United States looks at our foreign right. policy with the quadrennial review where we're doing defense diplomacy and development. So mm -hmm. we do try and march together with those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, know, I hear what you're saying. Sent in the Marines is never the first option, but do you think we should seriously start considering compulsory service again in this country so we have the resources necessary to assist? Is, is that to me? Sure. <laughs> I mentioned the Marines. Um, you know, I, I, my short answer is no, I do not think that's um, what's needed now. Um, the military itself doesn't want uh, a draft. Um, and the, the likelihood that we are going to be facing the kind of situation that was World War II uh, in our current age is fortunately not, not very high. Um, there are other kinds of challenges uh, out there for which a, a great deal of um, training is necessary, and I, I don't think a large standing army is the, is the answer to that. I do think that a lot of wiser choices by civilian leaders on which conflicts to engage in and when to send in the Marines or anybody uh, would be well worth developing. We've been talking about what to do in foreign countries to ameliorate the situation, whether it be Rwanda or what have you. In Europe, with the Syrian crisis, as refugees flooded into Europe, if you look carefully, their answer really was, let's give money to Turkey, and today, what, two to three million Middle Eastern uh, Arabs are in camps in Turkey. My question is, under the documents you've been talking about, is there an obligation on countries, whether it be in Europe or the United States, to accept refugees into their country uh, when obviously they have nowhere else to go? Yeah. Talk about Dublin too. The, w, the R2P does not require, as far as I've read it, that you accept refugees. Yeah. However, um, this country, the United States, has a long tradition of welcoming refugees from all sorts of cataclysms uh, and conditions around the world. Um, and particularly in the case of Syria, where our involvement, I hate to say, has probably not been one that didn't cause more harm. Um, there are Syrians of all varieties. They're not all Muslim terrorists. Um, many of them, many of their families live already in the United States and make great contributions. I think Canada, just to the north over the, la over the lake here, has been a, a, a fine example of, of keeping our doors open to people. These people are not terrorists. Terrorists don't come to us that way. Um, our numbers, I think, 
recently have been shameful, shamefully low. We have a huge country, a big country. We need skilled workers and people with an entrepreneurial uh, spirit. Little Armenia has received far more people uh, per capita, little poor, basically, Armenia, um, than, than we have. And I think it, it's to our, our shame, frankly. As your point about Turkey is very well taken. Um, as you know, it has taken the most number of refugees in the world, bar none. Over three million refugees are in Turkey. The second country is Lebanon. The third country is Jordan. The fourth country is Pakistan. These are not wealthy countries. And I think Pakistan and Uganda may be tied for fourth with regard to refugees. So we have a long history, but we certainly are not taking the most. The Europeans, in fact, have a law, it's called Dublin II, where refugees have to be accepted by the first country they touch, which is often Italy, sometimes it was Malta. Uh, and we could talk a little bit about the deal that the Maltese and the Italians did to get them to Italy instead. But Italy, Greece, Spain, they are debating, and unfortunately the times that we live in, the, the logical answer, which is to have each EU country take a quota of refugees is not being worked out because there are countries, Hungary, Poland, etc., who are saying absolutely not, and certainly no one that is not Christian and look pretty much like us. So it is a challenge that the world is dealing with, refugees and the accepting countries, and, and the word shame is, is one that can be used for a lot of us. I was speaking earlier about the fact that 20 years ago, we could never imagine that a country like Australia would allow indefinite detention. You'd never imagine that. And yet, that is what they're doing with refugees in Australia. And the priority in a number of European countries has been to sign deals for sending refugees back. Their priority is not to uh, settle these refugees, but it's to sign agreements um, to, to send them back to a country and essentially pay off the country to take back these individuals. Uh, so again, there's no overarching authority uh, for having to take uh, asylum seekers or, or refugees. I, I would, I'm going to add that that is not entirely unreasonable, which is not what I expected to be saying at this moment. But <laughs> insofar as the vast majority of refugees want to go home. Exactly. They yeah. want to go home. Yeah. And it makes sense to keep them as close to home so that they can get there when the circumstances allow for that. So that's not entirely unreasonable to have them in Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey and uh, Egypt and wherever else it's close so that they can get home again. But it does mean that they have to have the right support. They have to be able to support themselves. And it's also that struggle with the host nation with people who see refugees getting services, whether it's education or health or housing, that I, who was born here, am not getting. And that's where you get that scratch yeah. between the, the local population and the refugees, which is very challenging to, to negotiate. Hi, and this is really a follow-up to, to this very conversation. You know, so many of the things that we were talking about, you were talking about, have to do with sovereignty and citizenship and nation states. And coming off of that last point, what about crimes against humanity that are uh, for people who are stateless, for refugees, for asylum seekers? Um, 
what protections cover them, if any, and is that given sort of current realities, the Australian example is a good one, is that sort of the next frontier for international agreement? I would say that one of the wonderful things about the ICC and other similar tribunals is that they hold individuals accountable, not states, right? So when an individual commits a crime against humanity, the individual is the person who, and that's part of what the ICC is, is investigating in Venezuela right now. That's a really important dynamic, um, and it's a, an important means of accountability in the instance, but also sending messages to the future, right? That it doesn't matter if you're a non-state actor or a state actor, and it doesn't necessarily matter whether you've attacked a partisan or not. The ICC can hold individuals accountable for crimes against humanity. Thank you so, thank you so much for this topic today. It's, it's a great discussion. I could ask 20 questions, but I, I'm going to take on a, a responsibility to remember if there is one, and could you comment on, on what we as as society have as a responsibility to remember these atrocities? How should we talk about them? How should we teach them to succeeding generations? And I want you to overlay that with the challenge we've always had of the accusations from one side to the other that this is propaganda, it's fake news, it's not genocide due to race, these are political wars or civil wars that are going on. And you know, we, we, we see these challenges with, with fake, you know, fake news, fake media all the, all the time today, and I, and I think it adds that, that ounce of doubt among people as to, well, you know, maybe it's not as bad as I think it is. How, how do we wrestle with all of that? John? Yeah. Um, let me take a stab at this, uh, because the, I've said it before in public, and I'll say it again, the denial of the Armenian genocide of 1915 is perhaps the largest item of fake news ever propagated in the modern world. Um, Ninety-eight percent of genocide scholars agree that what happened to the Armenians in, in under cover of World War I was indeed a genocide. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of that here, uh, but I'll just uh, refer you to um, Human Rights uh, Watch, I mean, uh, Genocide Watch, uh, mm -hmm. an NGO um, that has developed a whole theory of genocide and, indeed, the last stage of genocide is its denial. And through denial, the continuation in other ways of the violence and theft involved in the original genocide. Uh, in fact, Genocide Watch says that the most certain indicator of future genocidal acts is the, the existence of denial. Now, uh, many of you know that the United States government, which was my employer for many years, um, does not use the word genocide with regard to the Armenian case. And my book, which has been mentioned, is about that whole uh, issue. Uh, I would just uh, add, though, that the real source of this denial is not in Washington. Uh, it is in Turkey. And the important thing is how Turkey, the Turks themselves, and particularly the Turkish state, which in some ways lags behind Turkish civil society in its willingness to deal with this uh, chapter from their history. 
that's where change has to happen. Our denial, that is the denial uh, in which we uh, cooperate, is not, it, it is derivative, and it's derivative because of our uh, strong NATO ties with Turkey. Julie, um, yeah. On the question of teaching and remembering, I will say that, and um, I fear when people speak of genocide and crimes against humanity in numbers, because all of those numbers were people. And when you, when you uh, sort of essentialize something that enormous to a number 800,000, you forget or you dismiss or you choose to ignore the faces and the children and the moms who ran with their children by their side um, and the shoes that got left behind. And that's dangerous, right? When I teach, uh, my students have to do a research paper and I require them to do an individual story, either a victim or a perpetrator, because those names have to be written down and remembered. And I want my students to know that those are people, right? Those were human beings um, and they had value. Um, and remembering them has value. Because you have to remember as you move forward that though today we're dealing with people, with individuals and moms and children and dads and brothers, and they all have value. Um, and I think to only talk in statistics and only talk in numbers is to sort of allow yourself to let go of the humanity, right? Is to give yourself space. And I think there's some safety in doing that, right? It's an emotional thing, it's traumatizing to study it for 16 weeks <laughs> across a semester. <laughs> but, but at some point, you, you shouldn't have that buffer, right? You need to remember that those, um, the reality of what you're dealing with, the value of that life, I mean, that's part of the danger of repeating it, right? That's part of how you allow deniers to deny. It can't, it can't be happening. And to the last point, I mean, this does underline the importance of a strong press in a, and vibrant, educated journalists who know history, know present context. And it's kind of the Wild West with media right now that there is difficulty verifying information, which makes it exhausting for all of us as news consumers, but also news producers. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm kind of heartened by innovative projects like Bellingcat, which is a open source community built uh, data-driven confirmation enterprise just from citizen journalists who uh, really uh, got their start through Russian intervention in Crimea and they were picking apart pictures based on Twitter saying yes. where was this where were these crews mm -hmm. that's that's something incredibly important and journalists can learn from that uh, because it's filling a need but uh, it, it is exhausting we just we need to demand more and accept nothing less yeah. um. So I was wondering how, with the U.S., we don't really always address kind of this violence within or at our borders. For example, with the treatment of refugees at the U.S.-Mexico border, especially currently. And last year, it's like we pulled out of the um, U.N. Human Rights Council. We refused to be a part of the ICC. Would you say that's kind of an accountability issue on ourselves, or would this be a sovereignty issue or something else entirely? Thank you. John? Um, this, is, this is definitely a responsibility of the United States itself. Um, we have to, um, and Congress, I would say, in particular, has to uh, deal with this, has to exercise oversight when necessary, and fundamentally to fix our broken immigration system. I mean, 
almost everybody realizes this is not working as it should. Um, and uh, there have been abuses, there have been, I, I think many of them are inadvertent, many of them have to do with lack of funding and over um, too many people for facilities and that sort of thing. But this is definitely our responsibility. We can't push it onto anybody else. You have thoughts, Gina, on that? I agree with what John said, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thank, thank you very much. It's a great conversation. But I'm a little uncomfortable with a conversation that talks about grave violence in the world without talking about our role. So my question is, how do we address the American role in both, the perp in both perpetrating grave violence and being a facilitator of it? Because it seems to me that we have a series of military interventions. We could start with Iraq, but we could all go back to Somalia in 1990. Um, in which the United States intervened on intentions that we all thought and we told ourselves in Washington that were pure. Our intentions were good, we invaded Iraq. Our intentions were good, we overthrew the Gaddafi regime. Our allies in Yemen, I'm not going to use the numbers, but they're horrific. Cholera, famine, multiple medical assessments of Iraq which showed direct and indirect casualties over a million. Intergenerational brutality which we've been a part of. But yet, because we have these intentions of purity, we escape accountability. I thought this was a great question. Not just accountability at our border, but accountability for what our allies do and for what we do. So I understand that we don't want to prosecute our soldiers or our politicians. But look at the costs of that. The fact that we have John Bolton, someone that's been wrong on every foreign policy decision, is in the NSC. The fact that the only accountability we have is a young congresswoman from Minnesota who yells at Elliot Abrams for his crimes that he committed as an American uh, uh, official. So how do we get our own, our own, uh, uh, you know, our own neighborhood and our own responsibility? When are we going to see accountability for American foreign policy and not always, and I agree with your argument about Turkey, let's go after the Erdogan government for their responsibility, but what about our own? Going to let you start that one. <laughs> um, that was a very eloquent summation of a, of a problem that we face. Uh, in short, we meant well. Um, and I, I remember that the, uh, the talk at the time of the invasion of Iraq, which of course had nothing to do with 9-11, um, was that we were going to reshape the Middle East. And, and one thing we've got to get out of our systems is the idea that we can uh, make other nations accept our concept of democracy um, because we want them to. Uh, that's not going to happen, and we should have learned that by now. But in answer of what to do about it, again, it's the press that has got to lead the way. The press, unfortunately, led us to Iraq, if you remember. Um, uh, the press was pretty much um, cheerleading uh, the push to go into Iraq. So the press is not all, all left off the hook here, but it is called to greater activity. And I think also the Congress needs to um, think about its abdication of the declaration of war responsibility that's clearly there uh, in the Constitution. Too often they have just uh, passed fuzzy resolutions uh, with, with no uh, end 
uh, game in, in mind. Uh, and so again, I blame the Congress for, for not uh, doing its job. I, I'm going to add two things and, and three happy points I think I may have on this. Uh, number one, I think those who make our decisions have to come from a broader segment of our population and that we really need to think about redefining our national security. What's involved in it, not just military action, but health and environment and education and what makes refugees, what makes us have to go and intervene or feel that we have to. And this is a longer discussion, which I'm sure we're going to have in Cleveland soon. Um, that said, there are two things that have happened over my 30 years as a diplomat, and that's international rep national reports we do on international situations. Two of them are trafficking in persons and the human rights report. And we've been doing them for a while. US diplomats since the late 1800s even have talked about human rights in other parts of the world, whether it was Haiti in the early 19th century, sorry, 19th century, yes, 20th century. Um, Liberia in the earlier days, we started doing the human rights report after Jimmy Carter became president. And at this point, we include ourselves in that assessment of human rights around the world. So we're not just looking at the rest of the world. We look at ourselves as well. I would argue that not enough people read the human rights report, whether it's on us and other countries, to get informed about what we assess pretty clear-eyed about the situation within the United States and other countries, and in the trafficking in persons report, where we rate ourselves, and we are not perfect in either of those two issues. So more looking at ourselves, I think you're absolutely right, that needs to be done, and a broader segment of the population defining our national security and helping make the decisions about what we do about it. We need more women involved, quite frankly. We need people who are not just European heritage males who have a particular way of thinking about things. So. I will very quickly tack on that, that I think uh, we are deeply committed to short-term solutions that are not nuanced and are not complex, and that our political leaders and that our, our mainstream public, and I think maybe less our press, but maybe our mainstream press, are not um, willing to do the very hard work of understanding the complex nature of, of political actions around the globe. Um, I think rendition and the extraordinary rendition program that we uh, implemented is a really good example, but there are others. Military strikes are almost never the solution to anything. They almost never solve anything but they uh, can be broadcast on TV, they can be done in a half an hour, Wolf Blitzer can cover it really quickly and then you can go have dinner and you feel like you solved the problem. Except for that you didn't, you blew something up, right? Um, I think there's a ginormous disconnect between analysts, right, and policymakers. Um, and then note, that doesn't exist in any other science. Scientists come up with great stuff and then marketers create like LCD TVs and sell them with the great stuff. Right? And they market them, and the science works in products that we buy. But in politics, you have analysts who know things. Right? We understand how dynamics work, and we have real facts that we can prove. Um, and then we have like policymakers. And sometimes the discussion and the connection that should bridge those two worlds isn't as solid as it should be. 
Um, and I think more time and more funding and more analysis would be to better more complex um, solutions, but we all have to commit to that. And the same goes with the responsibility of the press, that the, you know, we, we have more commentators than we do hard news journalists, investigative journalists, yes. and we really need to swing that pendulum back the other way. Today at the City Club, we have been listening to a forum on the United States response and responsibility to grave violence beyond our borders, featuring Gina Abercrombie Winstonley, former U.S. Ambassador to Malta, John Evans, former U.S. Ambassador to Armenia, and author of Truth Held Hostage America and the Armenian Genocide, and Dr. Julie Macy, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Kent State University. Our moderator has been Idea Stream host and producer, Tony Ganser. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your time and attention. This forum is now adjourned. podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC, and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.